I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist, with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Kayleen Steed about their thriller, Home. Kayleen is a writer, teacher, and an aspiring dog owner who lives in Helensborough with their husband and son. They are also a short story and audio drama writer, winning the Pen to Print Audio Play Award in 2020. In this episode, we discuss creating a fictional cult, how an agency open day led to Kayleen signing with an agent, and how they beat the difficulties of trying to write something completely new. But first, here's Kayleen with an excerpt from home. The door to my building is standing open, but that's not new. The part of the city it's in isn't great, but my little flat is my sanctuary. It's small and too cold in the winter and too hot in the summer, but it's my own place, filled with my own things. And I know that as soon as I get inside, I'll feel much better. I can't quite see right. It's like the shadows where there shouldn't be too many of them and at strange angles. I steady myself with a hand on the banister and drag myself up the stairs to my flat. I'll be okay once I get inside. I might not get into bed right away. I might strip off my soaked jeans, make a cup of tea in my favourite mug, the giant stripy blue one Meg gave me, wrap myself in my cosy winter blanket with the constellations on it and curl up on my squashy old couch. I'll nap there and then later maybe read my book. If I feel like eating, I might even order a takeaway instead of cooking as a treat. Everything will be fine if I can just get inside. I have to pause on my way up the stairs. Black spots waft in from the edge of my vision. I need to sit down. My key catches in the door instead of clicking through smoothly. I must have forgotten to lock it this morning. I try the yellow lock and that's on properly at least. I push open the door and drop my keys and phone into the bowl on the little table just inside. I shuffle down the dim hallway to the kitchen. I'll put the kettle on first, then get into my pyjamas. There is a man sitting at my kitchen table. He is dressed all in black with a black overcoat folded neatly over the chair beside him. His hair is greyer than it was, but it is still recognisably him. He is tracing a design on the tabletop with one of his fingers, and he looks up as I come in. Hello, Catherine, he says. My legs can't hold me, and I drop to the ground. There is a rushing noise in my ears, and everything is overbright. This is not happening. He cannot be here. He is speaking. His mouth is moving, but I can't hear what he's saying. 
he stands and moves towards me and I want to get up and run. I want to open my mouth and scream for the black spots are back, crowding into my vision, flowing and merging into the darkness of him until the last of the light is gone and they have blotted out everything. Hi, Kayleen. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you here with me today to discuss your debut novel, Home. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be here. So can you start by telling us what Home is about? Sure. Uh, so Home follows Zoe, who uh, as a child had escaped from a very secretive and oppressive cult. Um, but as an adult, she is lured back to the cult in an effort to rescue her sister. And I will admit now, and I'm sure this is no surprise to anyone, that I am a big fan of any novel that kind of talks about cults or writes about cults. <laughs> what interested you in writing about a cult and where did the idea come from to write this book? Oh, I've just sort of always been interested in cults, I guess. I just find them in religion more broadly. I just find it a fascinating topic. Um, I think because I was brought up like with absolutely no kind of religious kind of practice you know my, my folks weren't weren't religious at all so I always found that quite I don't know exotic or like fascinating I suppose um whereas I think if I'd grown up going to Sunday school every weekend I might not find it quite as fascinating um so yeah I've just always been fascinated by uh, like ritual and the kind of like tight-knit community that you get from religions and obviously to a far greater extent from from kind of cults and cult-like groups um and I suppose the the story is um, sort of been writing it or versions of it for a long time um and I think initially the the idea that later developed into home was the idea of someone who'd escaped from a very restricted and isolated place and was then exposed to the world um and in earlier drafts that was much more just that that story of like the escape and what happened afterwards um which in home has kind of changed now to this dual timeline there's the um the kind of early years in the cult building up towards the escape um and then at the same time you have uh the same character as an adult going back uh, into the cult running parallel i'm curious then because i know you write short stories did this ever kind of begin life as a, a shorter story Oh, I was like really resistant to writing short stories for the longest <laughs> time. I was like, I'm a novelist, having never completed a novel. <laughs> and, um, I started writing short stories only when I did a master's in creative writing a few years ago. And they kind of encouraged you to like seek publication. You had like little tasks and things where you'd write shorter pieces. So um, I'd kind of done a few and fired them off and got a few published and things and it was it's kind of good to add to like a kind of I guess a writing CV it was really good experience to like actually finish something for once but yeah I, I find writing short stories really tricky like uh, just the idea of like containing something in like one one very small thing I think so short stories are way harder than novels I think um so no so home was always a was always a novel so did you kind of start with this idea of wanting to explore the kind of psychology of a cult and what it would be like to to come out of one or was it Zoe herself that came to you what was it that came to me I think it was the character and the opening or the the second chapter um, at the very start the idea of someone just working away having this very normal life and then <clears throat> this person from their past just reappearing and then it turns out that this person has not had a normal life at all like they've had uh, a very atypical and kind of crazy experience but they've um hidden it all away in the past i'm really interested in that idea of 
like secret worlds or hidden worlds that only a few people will get access to. Um, uh, on the one hand, that's a very like fantasy concept, but I think uh, in the sense of having very closed societies, it can also be a really realistic concept as well. The idea that only a select few get to see this completely different way of experiencing the world. Um, so I think that was that was the idea that really prompted, or the concept that really prompted the story. Yeah, it's really fun as a reader to kind of have the knowledge that Zoe doesn't have and mm. to see kind of navigate the world and and culture and society and the kind of ordinary ways in which people behave. And it's when she's working in a cafe, I guess she's coming across mm. a so many different people, but also so much of life that we would take for granted as ordinary. And and yeah. for her to kind of find her way around that in a way that's I guess socially socially acceptable mm. is, is such a challenge for her. I wondered whether you could talk a little bit about your decision to um, explore this dual narrative, because as you said, you started with just the kind of aftermath of someone who has left a cult. But then we also get the, I guess, the story of how she escaped in the first place. So tell us Mm -hmm. your reasoning for for telling both of those stories. Oh, I wish there was like a really sensible answer. I was was like a discovery writer. I wrote the first I'm going to say like half of the book, just discovery um, over the period of like a number of years. And uh, there was no like sensible reason. I just, I think I just started writing like a flashback chapter and then it just sort of like developed, um, which then, you know, got like smoothed over and made much more sense uh, in subsequent edits. But yeah, I don't, I don't have like, I'm a bit of a pantser, so I don't really have a a really sensible answer for that. I just sort of did it. I say I reckon about 70% of guests I've had on the show have been pantsers or or <laughs> not really much of planners. So I'm going to have to do the statistics one day and find out what the percentages are of planners versus pantsers. It's <laughs> fascinating to hear how many people just write without a kind of idea of where it's going. But I guess that's that's the freedom of it. Yeah. And it's like, it, for me, it always works really well until about 30 to 40,000 words. And then I run out of steam and go, oh, well, you know. <laughs> What makes, you, what makes you carry on at that point then? Because um, I am, I would say, more of a planner mm. as a writer. So I have that goal in sight, I guess, even though that 30,000, 40,000 mark is always tricky. How do you, what kind of motivates you to keep going to the end? Or what with this book then motivated you to carry on to the end? Uh, well, with this book, <laughs> I was, um, I think this was before... I did my master's so at that you know at this point I was I was very much writing just like in the evenings and stuff and never never really like seriously considered it would necessarily go anywhere and I applied for it was some kind of novel writing prize and you didn't have to have a complete novel to enter which was a huge draw for me um so but as part of the entry you had to send your first however many thousand words but then also a really detailed plan of the rest of the novel and I was like I should probably make that up then so I just made up the rest of the novel for this competition sent it off did not win said competition but then I had a really detailed plan which I used for the rest of the book so that all worked out really well (laughs) so a reluctant planner then in this case yeah yeah I think I start off kind of discovery and then eventually go oh I should probably plan (laughs) do you think I mean I'm I'm guessing we'll we'll talk about a little bit more about the next book later on but has your way of working changed at all now you've got one book done for sure yeah I think as well like the idea of like they expected like no one was expecting this first thing that I read except I wrote except possibly like my mom um so 
you know there was I worked on it over like years like here and there there was not much of like a kind of professional focus on it you know until much later in the process um but for the second one there's very much a sort of like kind of pressure that I feel internally I guess to like I've got to write another book now and you know it's a difficult second album thing and I I don't know I think I I started writing or wanted to write the second one uh in 2020 which was not a great year for like doing anything <laughs> um and also had like a young child and you know the pandemic and working from home and all the stuff that everybody was having to deal with so I think I, I basically didn't really manage that I had a huge writer's block that year and I tried to do all sorts of things to to get going with it so yeah I'd, I really 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 struggled and previously because I'd worked on this one book for so long I knew the characters really well I knew the story really well and it was really disorientating starting again and being like, well, I have no ideas. I have nothing. Like, <laughs> what do I do? Where did these ideas come from? Instead of almost having to, like, start from square one and, and generate something. Um. So, yeah, this has been a very, very different experience with book two. Mm-hmm. Let's touch back on book one then, because that's what we're here to talk about. Um, <laughs> I wondered whether you could tell us a little bit more about uh, the cult in home. I wondered whether it was inspired by any real world cults and also mm. what kind of research did you do to get into that that mindset of Zoe where or 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 Catherine her other her other identity what mm. kind of what kind of research did you do to kind of get yourself in that place where you felt like you could write from that perspective um I like I said because I've always been fascinated by cults I've like always been drawn to like documentaries you know books um I suppose more laterally when I was I was um approaching the the writing more seriously uh reading interviews with people who'd been in cults was really um really useful and really instructive um that whole thing of like how they adjust to the world outside like what the like little little details you might not sort of think of yourself that are are kind of shocking or unusual to them or that they find difficult I remember reading a newspaper article about a girl who had been brought up in a very very small cult to believe that she was sort of I think she was supposed to be like the sort of second coming kind of idea and when her and two the women managed to like escape from this flat where they were being held um she just walked straight across the road and was almost immediately flattened by a bus because she'd like never walked across the road before and so even these really basic things like interviews with with people who've had those experiences were were particularly useful I think um with coming up particularly with how Zoe um response to the world in her her adult narrative were there any sort of particular religions or cults that you used as because well I'll talk a little bit in a second about your world building but um were there any because I to begin with when I started reading your novel I wondered whether it was based on a real cult but you you very much it very much has its own identity um so was there any kind of particular cults you kind of gravitated towards to read about no, but there was like types, I guess, like the very fundamentalist kind of, you know, women are for having babies, men are for doing the things, um, kind of cults. Uh, was there are a lot of those. <laughs> like so many, <laughs> almost all of them. Yeah. Uh, so few cults with a matriarchal aspect, uh, which is a shame. Um, funny that. So yeah, um, those that kind of uh, uh vibe was was I think the the one that. I wanted to look at because it's it's so restrictive but it's also very much something that like a lot of the attitudes that you have in these cults are not necessarily actually that niche like um 
and I think particularly in, in you know in recent years there's been such a, a backlash against um, LGBTQ plus people and so on like I think we're seeing some of these re- regressive attitudes kind of take hold again so uh, read a lot about like different um, kind of cults and and tried to take like the the cult that I have in the book the idea was very much that it it has like a uh, a philosophy that just kind of like whatever works they'll use it you know there's not necessarily a really like coherent committed spiritual kind of like meaning behind it it's it's essentially a kind of I think a lot of these things are like a like a kind of scam you know there the there's a lot of people who are very believe you know committed to it and believe in it wholeheartedly but you've got a, a top layer of people who are manipulative and they they use these as a means of controlling people as a result, there's, you know, like any scam, they just they take bits and pieces of what's going to work. Um, so there was a lot of bits of it that were inspired by various things, um, but it wasn't based on one particular cult. Well, the simple fact that the first thing they make people do is give away their money is the mm-hmm. indication that, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are lots of similar scams slash cults that do the same, but that's yeah. their first test if you're willing to give away all your money, then they've got yeah. Yeah, this is it. And it's the sunk cost thing. Like once you've given up your time and once you've given up your money and once you've given up, you know, more and more things, then it gets harder and harder to back out. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your world building. I know that this was something when I wrote my novel, I had a lot of fun with, but also getting the rules straight in your mind is <laughs> can be difficult because you basically have infinite choices to make. So tell us a little bit about how you decided on the hierarchy the beliefs I mean you also there's even points where you build in your own scripture and language and and roles within this so how did you kind of on a practical writing level how did you do this a lot of it was sort of back engineered and partly that's because from the main character's perspective and we're in first person the whole way through she she only sees her very small part of it we only see the leader of the cult once you know like as a physical person in front of her like she's not she's not someone who's privy necessarily to like the inner workings of it and the the kind of mass thing she just sees these little snatches so while I was writing the story in a fancy sort of way I was just playfully like you know just like throwing stuff in and then at the end uh, it was pointed out to me that I needed something sort of like consistent um so I did need to go back and kind of think like okay what do they believe or the rules um in what ways even if this isn't something that the the character especially as a young child like knows this is you do have to have a rule because that's going to govern how she experiences things and what she's led to do and so on so a lot of it was kind of I guess you know like looking like say at these these kind of examples of cults that are like this and thinking okay like how do they how do they enforce these repressive and restrictive rules how do they justify it and a lot of it is to do with this idea of like, well, what's what's pure and what's natural and, you know, what's our original state or this belief in what our original state or the some, you know, hallowed good old days was like. And kind of taking a lot of those those kind of principles and, and using those to to like make up rules and, and then bring in like like scripture and, and that kind of like cod biblical language. Um, a lot of that was uh, influenced, the, the sort of biblical language was influenced by... um a book called oh John Wyndham's um book he wrote the Midwich Cuckoos but he also uh wrote a sort of like futuristic um book uh about a sort of future society where they um uh had kind of survived this huge 
like tribulation um and uh, as a result is that the uh, chrysalids yeah the chrysalids yeah, um, yeah i read that <laughs> i read that as research for my novel as well yeah, yeah it's so good and it like it it just it does that kind of like called biblical language so well so a lot of that was kind of like inspired by the way john wyndham approached that mm. i had to write scripture for my novel and it's funny i only wrote a couple of paragraphs of it to mm-hmm. spread out throughout the novel and yet those tiny paragraphs took me hours and hours it's getting the mm-hmm. language so mm-hmm. right that it sounds in fact I have, have had people ask me did I did you make that up or is that from an actual like biblical text <laughs> and I'm like no I made it up <laughs> <laughs> there is that like that real tone and cadence and stuff and yeah like it's it's very recognizable it's it's fun to do though and it, it kind of pushes you as a writer I think to kind of make these things feel so believable because you are constructing this this cult or this kind of faith that's going to be believable as well mm-hmm. yeah yeah you have to believe that people would really sign up to it and it's almost harder to do in fiction because there's a lot of stuff and I'm sure you find the same researching cults that you're like if I put this in a book you're like it would it would just seem nonsensical and like no one would believe this but but people do believe the most outlandish things and I suppose a lot of it is because it looks outlandish from the outside like when you like we're discussing this in the run-up to Christmas and I have a pine tree downstairs in my living room that I put shiny things on like why <laughs> do you know like that's you've never seen that tradition before you'd be like what are you doing yeah <laughs> um so I suppose everything looks odd from the outside definitely so one thing you've got as a balance to this darkness and this cult is the kind of lighter, more hopeful moments that Zoe experiences in the cafe uh, with Meg. And also there's a, there's a section where she goes clothes shopping and there's also her relationship with Addie as well. Um, mm-hmm. So what, how important were these scenes for you to kind of balance the, the darker stuff that we read as well? Oh, really important. I think it's it's hard to stick with a story all the way through if it's just dark and depressing and your character is just getting ground down by life all the time like you have to have these these hopeful moments um especially because I think they're where your character shines a lot you know you're you're seeing who they who they are when they're much more under unrestricted um and they're a lot nicer to write <laughs> my um the romance with Addie was one of my favorite things to write I loved when I I knew I had a chapter of that coming up I was like oh thank god <laughs> um so that was yeah it's it's fun to write I hope it, yeah like you say it does it does lift the mood but it also gives you an indication of like why what what does this person have to lose you know if they go so he goes back to the cults try and rescue her sister but if we felt like her life was just awful and drudgery like why you know what what's what's the issue with going back to the cult but knowing that she has this life that she's fought very hard for and it has these moments of joy and and friendship and connection um gives that kind of quest that she goes on so much more meaning yeah those chapters with addy were were lovely and i also really really enjoyed meg as well so i definitely think my favorite character yeah they those i think i get that get that sense from you um (laughs) just from reading the book actually um (laughs) one thing you explore in both in both sections i guess is um zoe's identity which she wrestles with um mm. not just who she is but how she fits into the world how she fits into the cult and mm. I think often when when we write about cults not whether we realize it at the time or not we're often trying to say something about kind of contemporary life did you go into this novel with an idea of what you wanted to say or what your themes were going to be or did they kind of come through the writing process 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. They very much came through the writing process. Um, and I think, I think theme is something that, like for me, I don't know about yourself, but for me, it very much comes in like, like a second or a third draft um especially if someone else has read it and they've been like oh this is about identity and you're like yeah yeah no it is isn't it <laughs> that's what i meant well along. <laughs> of course it is and you read it and you're like no yeah that's what i'm writing about and yeah so i think that a lot of that comes in later and yeah very much about that idea of like how do you form an identity when you spend so much time being told what your identity is and not being given an option to explore it um for yourself um and you mentioned the character meg um and she really represents the person that allows or helps shepherds away into um being able to make those decisions for herself um rather than she kind of she's the the kind of mother figure in the book um whereas the the kind of shadowy figure that <clears throat> pulls Zoe back into the cult the hand of god is is this kind of like twisted father figure um and Meg is the mother figure like kind of gives her this kind of like gentle introduction to the world but kind of lets her go off herself as well like you you would hope you do with a child whereas the cult and and the hand of god are much more controlling and didactic yeah and I think as well like there's there's times where even within the cult that she's brought up in she doesn't really feel like the role these kind of narrow roles represent how she feels about herself either so Mm -hmm. it's not like the cult gives her that sense of belonging Mm. and and even when she's in the kind of the real world as we as we might call it she's still navigating who she is how she feels 
mm. um, who she fancies, like those big mm. questions that she hasn't had the space and the time to work out. And like you say, Meg is great for kind of giving her permission to basically experiment and do do what she wants. Yeah, yeah. And that's that was kind of her her function as a character. And then she's also very much there for the like the lighter parts of the novel. Like she's quite she was quite fun to write because she's very sarcastic. <laughs> So you've already talked a little bit about your writing process and in the fact that you are not much of a planner. But yeah. I heard an interview with you where you talked about kind of writing routines and how to build one when life gets in the way, basically, when you have other responsibilities or work. So can you tell us a little bit about how you write and how you fit in writing kind of into your day, how it was for home and maybe how it is now? Sure. Um, well, home was written... Um, I suppose the the vast chunk in, of the manuscript in terms of what survives was written between like 2016 and 2019. Um, and at the time I was working full time, I was doing this master's in the evening and I also had like a one year old baby. And I that's not a work life balance. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Looking back, I like I don't know when I got the time to write. I just did it every so often, I suppose, when I had the time. And that's very much uh, not how I, I work now. I'm, I'm trying to like prioritize rest and occasionally like you know sleeping and eating and having a social life and things so I'm lucky now that I have uh, a job that allows me to work four days a week so one day a week just to dedicate to like writing stuff um so it's it's much easier to just like silo off like okay that's the writing day do all the the kind of writing things on on that day um and I find it quite useful to start off by like you know getting rid of like admin as a kind of settling in thing and then the afternoon is like head down um, try and get however many words you're you're going for uh, for the day so having having like a really specific chunk of time is very helpful but then you know obviously like when I, I wrote the first manuscript that that wasn't uh, the case and it's not the case for a lot of people and in that case you just I think you just have to kind of do what you can and also that means you know you can't necessarily and if you're the kind of person that isn't going to get up at 5am and write 2,000 words then don't get up at 5am and write 2,000 words like write 100 words on your phone while you're like in a queue for something you know like you just you do what you can when you can when when it works for you I think and and I think going through a process of finding out what works for you is is really important for people. Mm. What aspect of writing is the one that you find most challenging and how have you worked to get over it basically? Oh um, I think I said before I found getting started on book two really hard so yeah, I just suddenly after years and years of working on one thing and occasional like little projects in between, just not having a big project, I found really hard. Um, how did I get over that? I spent a lot of time banging my head against the wall <laughs> and writing things and then deleting them in disgust, um, which wasn't working. So then I tried to very consciously like not write and just like read a lot, read widely. Um, watch a lot of like different like tv shows and movies and like consume like art and music and just try and like be inspired and just see where that led me um I did like like scrapbooking and I was quite into like bullet journaling at the time um which I did very very ineptly but it made me happy so I I did like like a lot of that with not necessarily the pressure of feeling like I have to create the next novel but just like what's what's I'm interested in and Scarlett Thomas um who wrote like the end of Mr. Y. I absolutely love her. She has a book called Monkeys with Typewriters. Um, I love that book. 
it's so good and it has that section about creating a, a matrix of um you just put in all the stuff that you're interested about and all the stuff that you know about and stuff that's like in the news and what's like an object you like and you just randomly put these elements together and see what comes out <clears throat> and that's what i ended up doing um and that's how uh, book two came about um but then also just doing like writing without the pressure of feeling like i have to write my next novel right now um mm. there was an interview with nk jemison um who wrote the broken earth trilogy uh, it was also wonderful and she was writing about how she secretly writes fan fiction um and she she's like she publishes it anon- anonymously and she's like you'll never know it's me but i've written so much <laughs> and i would never done that and i was like oh i'll try that and i sat down one night and i wrote like ten thousand words in a night because so i was like this is because so, the world's already there for you mm. you know you just you're just having fun so i think yeah the the thing that i found really difficult was like restarting a new project feeling a bit blocked and overwhelmed by it and I guess I got past it by just allowing myself to be creative rest a bit and have fun with it again you've written short stories that we've been, as we mentioned part of your MA course and you also wrote an award-winning audio play so I would like to know how does writing in different forms support your novel writing and was writing I mean you've mentioned you think short story writing is harder but what mm-hmm. was your approach to novel writing compared to these two other kind of different ways of writing um I think my approach to novel writing was probably like really unearned confidence <laughs> <laughs> I think I just always had this idea from when I was a very young kid that I could just like of course I could write a whole book like I just I was just too young and stupid to question it um until it was too late uh whereas like yeah short stories and audio play like <clears throat> the audio drama came about because I was doing the the masters and for one of the projects you had to write something that wasn't in your like your usual um style so if you wrote poetry you had to write prose and, and so on so I had my main focus during that was like writing the novel and I was a bit like oh this, oh, this is so annoying and so I was like what can I do really quickly and I was like write a radio drama that'll be super easy and then it wasn't <laughs> I um I was very kindly one of my lecturers gave me a a link to a gentleman at the BBC uh I think Radio 4 who like commissions radio dramas and they were like oh we can give you some feedback um and this poor man I sent him like this mess absolute mess of a script and he wrote me this very polite email back explaining in detail very gently why it was terrible oh no (laughs) it was so lovely and I was like I'm so indebted to him because I was like oh yeah no that's right um so after that, I just like rewrote it and kind of scrapped it and, and wrote what became the the audio play that that went for the competition. Um. So yeah, lots of unearned. I think unearned confidence is probably the mixing <laughs> line between these. But then also like uh, listening to feedback. If people are are good enough that they'll they'll give you your their time and, and expertise, then I, I think you always want to to listen to people and and respond um, and, and use that to, to guide and improve your work. So what was your route to getting an agent and then your book deal? What was your experience like with that? Uh, probably surprisingly smooth. Um, I um, spend way too much time on Twitter and it really panned out for me because I follow a lot of like, uh, you know, like agencies and, you know, literary journals and publishers and like bookie people. And when I saw this um, tweet come up from a literary agency saying, oh, we're having an open day in Edinburgh, um, completely free. Anyone can sign up for a slot. We'll read your first chapter and we'll give you feedback on it. Um, and most literary things seem to happen in London. And I was like, oh, my God, Edinburgh, I can get to Edinburgh on a train. Um, 
and I signed up and I was the very last slot of the day. I was the, the last one. So it was, um, it was very well timed. And I went along to it and I met uh, Robbie Guillory and he read my first chapter and he was like, oh, I, I really like this. Um, I'd love to read the whole book. And I was like, great. There is no book. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll finish one for you if you like. And he was like, awesome. Send it to me when you're done. Um, so I think like six months later, I sent him a full draft and then he read it. It took him a couple of months. And then in, it was like December, 2019, um, we met for a coffee at Waterstones in Glasgow and he offered representation. So it was actually a really smooth. And I kind of, I think in the meantime, I'd fired off maybe like a couple of like blank kind of, once I'd finished the the manuscript, I'd fired off a couple of emails um, to agencies and, and, and kind of hadn't gotten anywhere with it. But I was very lucky because I know a lot of people spend, spend a long time and, and query a lot of agencies. Um, but I think... The open day thing was just amazing. I think more mm-hmm. agencies should do them because it just gets you that kind of face-to-face contact, which I think is really important. Um, and that one was like, you know, you didn't need the contact. It wasn't, you didn't pay for it as long as you could like get yourself to this place. Mm-hmm. Um, it was available to you. So I think it's um, it's something more agencies to do. And I think now that, you know, people are, are so much better with online communication, that's something agencies could do without even the, the need necessity of being physically there which would make it more accessible to people uh, yeah I, I think I've seen one agency that are doing one um end of December beginning of January or something um and I, I think that's a great a great opportunity for people to mm-hmm. I think like you say sometimes it's just it's just meeting people it's getting some sort of foot in the door which mm. if you're particularly if you're not very confident at writing a query letter or a, mm-hmm. a synopsis it can be that I mean obviously you've still got to pitch your book somehow but it can be helpful to meet these people and make an impression rather than just them receiving a, an email which could be from anyone yeah absolutely and like synopsises are awful like I don't they know they are the worst worst <laughs> and I think as part of this I did have to write a synopsis as well and, and Robbie um was like yeah your synopsis is dreadful <laughs> like first chapter is grand but the first synopsis is so bad <laughs> So you signed with your agent in end of 2019. Mm-hmm. At what point did you get your book deal? Was it much longer? Did you do much work with your agent on the kind of editing of your book or? Yeah, he was very hands-on. Um, Robbie was great. So he, we went through, I think, one or two revisions um, of the manuscript and then <clears throat> started shopping it around in uh, the summer-ish of 2020 um and then it got sent to raven bloomsbury towards the end of the summer and in august i remember i got a a call from robbie i was like halfway up a mountain and i got a call from robbie saying oh raven are are interested and i was like great and he was like they want you to cut twenty thousand words from the opening first i was like oh god (laughs) and he was like it's not an offer of publication They, they would like to see a revised manuscript and i was like sure what else am i doing so um Sarah Helen Binney, who became my editor at Raven, had very kindly taken the time to write a very detailed kind of feedback letter about, you know, we're interested, but we'd like to see more changes before we kind of say yeah or nay. Um, and I thought all the changes she suggested were, were really great um, after spending a while sobbing at the idea of like cutting 20,000 words. So I did that, resent it back. And then in December 2020, I heard from Raven that they would they wanted to publish it. Brilliant quite a long wait though from then till publication 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, two years, which I think everyone in your life who is very sensibly knows nothing about publishing is like, is like, is your book still coming out? Like, is there yeah. something wrong? You're like, no, this is normal. I think, I think it was my dad that questioned, was this just my book that was taking ages or was it everyone's? <laughs> I was like, no, don't worry. It's everyone's. It's not just me. Totally <laughs> normal. Yeah. <laughs> So I know it's really early days for you as an author, but if you could share one piece of advice for writers who are about to become debut novelists or let's say the 2024 debuts, what would your advice be? Oh, try and build a community, I think. Um, Because I think writing can be quite isolating, um, but actually there's so many opportunities for it to be a really like collegiate thing. You know, like you work with your editor, you work with, you know, your, your agent and, and various kind of like um copy editors and, and so on so there's there's that aspect of it but outside of that as well like trying to make links with other writers um i found that to be incredibly rewarding um and not necessarily for like a, a kind of like industry networky kind of reason but for a kind of um like moral support and in, in community kind of reason um so that you have people to message when you know Oh, something's happening in publishing and you're like is this normal and they're like it's normal don't worry it's okay. <laughs> so that's really useful and then you can share your journey with people and get advice and and make connections and it's yeah it's quite a I suppose it's, it's quite an unusual thing to be an author and you might not know anyone in your immediate life so it's it's nice to make these connections with people even if they're they're just kind of online um and they can become offline friends as well which is very nice yeah definitely so finally I'm very very eager to hear more about this elusive book too please tell us something about it oh god um <laughs> what can I tell you about it it's not finished <laughs> it's not the same genre so mm-hmm. this one is um so I'm saying fabulism um I was saying magical realism but I think that's that's very much a term that needs to be applied to South American literature because it has a politically sort of specific political dimension um but uh, it's that that sort of idea so like a an everyday kind of world but there's this this one little element of it that um someone uh comes across and it gives them this uh access to uh a kind of a hidden a hidden world um and it is very much inspired by i guess like grief um but also um expanding or exploring into different spaces or different realities um and what it would be like to have access to that but also have one foot in the real world um and one of the characters is grieving and I suppose that that's that's something that does kind of shunt you out of the normal world a little bit you you suddenly experience life very differently from other people so yeah that's that's where we are just now (laughs) well that sounds great to me I'm really looking forward to reading it whenever that may be thank you so much Kaylin for joining me on the podcast today Thank you very much for having me. I've really enjoyed our chat. That was Kayleen Steed talking about their thriller, Home, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 